0: It is an honour to have Professor Frank Frizzell join me for episode 29. Frank is a leading gastroenterologist and colorectal surgeon based here in Christchurch. I first met Frank many many years ago when I was about 12 and he was actually the specialist throughout my mother's bowel cancer journey. This whole experience is definitely a time in my life that sparked a real interest for me in medicine, health and nutrition's involvement with bowel diseases. Since then I have followed a lot of Frank's research, his involvement in the Bowel Cancer New Zealand charity and have had the privilege of working with patients who have been previously under his care. Frank is certainly a medical professional many of us look up to including myself. So without further ado I hope you enjoy listening to this very in-depth, interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology, alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, You can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. Good morning Frank, so lovely of you to join me today.
1: It's it's nice to you to ask me.
0: (laughs) So to start at the beginning, why did you choose medicine?
1: Um, I I suppose uh, I was at secondary school and I was looking around what to do and it was, I looked at engineering and I considered uh, architecture. And I think I had been good at mathematics at school and physics and chemistry. And I was looking for something which I I might be able to cope with the studies. And it was interesting. And I think as I came to the end of secondary school, I realized more and more the advantage of medicine was that it was the people focus of it and that you could actually um, get to deal with people. I think when you look back now, you, you sort of can always sort the of things you want to do something good for humanity and everything else. But you uh, also, as a teenager, you tend to be thinking about yourself more, and you're trying to think about what you could possibly do that might uh, that you might be able to cope with. Mm. Mm. So yes, yeah, so I was I was interested in medicine, but I hadn't come through a biology focus. I'd come through a mathematics focus. Um, and physics focus, and uh, the it did it, it it. I suppose the more I got down the statistics and MF and uh, that sort of line, the more I realised it was actually the, the contact with people that I uh, needed to make a job with. Well, mm-hmm.
0: and through your training years, was there any other specialties that captured your interest, or what, what got you into gastroenterology?
1: So uh, basically I started off, uh, did my medical degree and I thought as that was going on I thought I'd like to be a rural GP. Um, I thought that had a lot of appeal and it had to definitely, the books all describe rural GPs as exciting and part of the community, it seemed to tick all the boxes I, I was interested in. Uh, I then, um, I spent six weeks on a uh, rural GP rotation. I realised when I came back from that that I didn't really think that was me, <laughs> so I suppose it's better to try it at the right of that stage. And I've got more and more interested in surgery. And uh, initially, I started off wanting to do neurosurgery. It seemed to have a lot of appeal. And uh, during at that time, you had to train in general surgery before you could do ge- neurosurgery. And uh, so I did two rotations in neurosurgery, and both of them I thought that a success in neurosurgery would generally be a failure in any other sort of walk of life, that there wasn't a lot of... um, It didn't seem to, despite the excitement of trying to work on someone's brain, the actual reality of what that looked like wasn't that interesting. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I got more and more involved. In the end, I changed as a general vascular surgeon, um, and at the end of that I took on a locum consultant job in Dunedin um, for 12 months while I was uh, busy sorting out some other, uh, finishing a, a thesis I was doing, and it's at that point I, I realised that really it was uh, bowel cancer and bowel disorders that were really poorly treated compared to what I had thought was possible and what I was seeing both uh, during, during my training and as a consultant, I realised how how had the outcomes, it was a common disease, and we didn't do it well. Mm. Um, so I wrote to about thirty places overseas, looking for a post-fellowship training post, um, and uh, eventually um, I wrote to places that were that were had good reputations for good training. Uh, a number replied, declining and saying that were that they had been booked up three or four years in advance. Uh, many just probably just put it in the waste bin, didn't bother replying. And then I was doing a locum weekend in Omaru and I got this phone call from some guy with a French accent, saying that he was uh, from the Mayo Clinic, and that uh, if I was, did uh, I have my exams to practice in America? Well, which I had, um, and when I, when would I be available? Uh, and I said, well, I could probably be there in a week, if I could get through the things. So he uh, he sort of laughed and said, well, we'll send you some paperwork, fill that out, and send it back. We, have a position for you starting in in three months' time. Um, So I assumed, given that uh, you don't hear that many French accents in in Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic was, that this was one of my friends uh, taking the mickey out of me uh, and and just didn't tell anyone, um, waiting for someone else to let the joke out. Um, And and, uh, about 10 days later, this um, FedEx... envelope arrived, all this paperwork all signed by the American uh, people and so I folded my part and sent it back and uh, let the person in charge know that I was leaving.
0: So certainly not a joke. It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a joke
1: and then raised some me fears and everything else and so I uh, then got myself uh, duly uh, contacted the registration authorities and followed through on that process. So yeah, no, it was all for real but I, I just wasn't sure because... Um, I really—I had a friend that used to ring up uh, occasionally at three in the morning and tell me that, that some patient was awfully sick and that I'd operate on them. And uh, was he'd put on all sorts of accents. Um, just he thought it was hilarious. I didn't. Um, but anyway, that's what friends are about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I don't think
1: many people would find that hilarious. <laughs> uh, well, I think they'd be out drinking, and they just decided that it would be entertaining to annoy people. <laughs> uh, they knew that they knew that I was busy. So anyway, the sort of thing you did when you were young. Um, so anyway, I ended up going to America and training in colon and rectal surgery. And mm-hmm. when I was there, uh, the person, the guy with the French accent, a guy called Roger Desjoyeux, who was actually was was French Canadian. He was head of the unit there he uh, had gone to Glasgow uh, to speak at a conference and he came across a guy called Alf Kashiri, or later Professor Sir or Lord Alf Koshiri and said look this is stuff coming along called laparoscopic surgery and I've seen this chap and remember this is in the early 90s he says I know that uh, this this is probably the way forward and he said I think you should go over and learn this So I went to, um, he was in Dundee and um, I went there and spent a year there. And he arranged for me, he's from Malta originally, uh, Alf had represented, he'd been a rose collar, he'd represented uh, Malta in the high dive. Now he was about five foot nothing. Um, So it would have been interesting to see him do the high dive in in the day. But he'd gone to Oxford and done a master's in history and then gone on and finished, his, uh, done his medical training and uh, eventually become professor in Birmingham, I think it was, and then moved to Dundee because they had more money for research. But he was really uh, pushing this, and he was definitely, he'd done a lot of stuff that was quite uh, right on the edge of uh, of new knowledge, and he'd done things like contacted the major instrument developer at the time, which was called Stortz. And invited them to build a lab in the hospital, which they had. And so you'd be operating with him, and he would. they would come, the, the instrument technicians would come into theatre and talk about an instrument you are using. And he'd make suggestions how to make it better. Then they'd go off to the lab and change it. And then either the next operation or later they'd come in with the, with the newly developed instrument and then you would try that. So it was right at the development of the type of instruments that we use for laparoscopic surgery. So it was very, uh, it was really gave you a good insight into how uh, change occurs because you know, you're right, right on the wave. And uh, by then we had a family, and uh, uh, I think as time goes on, you get you get you start to think about returning to New Zealand, and so uh, we. Uh, a job came up in Christchurch and uh, it's suited us both, None of, neither of us had family here and so we uh, came to Christchurch, we applied and I got appointed and then ended up washing up in Christchurch and though I thought it might be a stepping stone somewhere else, I've never really bothered to leave, there's mm-hmm. um, plenty of opportunity, it's been quite quite an easy place to live yeah. and it's been good for a family place and mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it's worked out well for me. Mm.
0: Christchurch is awesome, yeah. so. With the laparoscopic surgery, or keyhole surgery, how, yes. how what percentage of the surgeries you do would be laparoscopic?
1: Okay, so remember, this is in the early 90s. So when I came back, when I came here, we got this stuff going, and we did about 600 laparoscopic cases. Um, and then we had young surgeons coming along that all wanted to do this, and so we divided up the workload. Into different components, and I took on the complex open work because there wasn't—we didn't think there was enough laparoscopic work for everyone, and we wanted the the benefit of this was to give the work to the young people because going forward they would have the longest lead time, and that, and I would wander off and do the complex open stuff, which no one really wanted to do. So I just adapted to to that. So now I don't do any laparoscopic work despite having done a lot of cases early part of my career. So now I just deal with complex, open work, uh, recurrent tumours, people's operations that have gone wrong, uh, um, tumours that are advanced, and um, all sorts of things like that. So it's been an evolution. and You know, what I started doing in the early 90s and what I'm doing in the early 220s (laughs) is 30, 30 years has led to a lot of it, it, you know, you try and fit in with those, and try to find the spot that um, allows other people to develop their practice. And that. So now I, I have a sort of two extremes of practice. I do um, a lot of um, a lot of colonoscopy and proctology, and I do a lot of complicated and abdominal work. I do a little bit of stuff in between, but, but most of my work sits at either end, mm-hmm. and um, and that's uh, it's interesting. It's uh, I would never have picked that. Uh, but you know life is what happens not what you plan (laughs) yeah
0: and you are the expert when it comes to bowel cancer so to discuss a little bit more about that I'm interested to hear is there um, differences in say where cancers are found within the bowel and demographics like say younger people versus older and even regions throughout New Zealand
1: yeah, so in answer to all those questions, yes. Um, so bowel cancer is found in different... About a third of bowel cancer is found at the end of the bowel, so the rectum and the, the distal rectosigmoid, and the rest of it's distributed invariably throughout the bowel. Um, a third in the ascending the, in the, in the, in the colon and the rest between the two. So that sounds like it's sort of like three parts, and it more or less is, um, but the bowel... The rectum and sigmoid is only about 25. Rectum sigmoid is only about 25 centimetres, in the cecum again, and the rest is that, that half a metre or so between the two is where the other third is. So it's it's there's a uh, there's variation. Now also that variation changes depending on the age of the person. So people under under uh, 50 have a predominance. I mean, 70 or 80 percent of their cancers is in the rectum and rectosigmoid. So it's quite different. Um, it's, it's, so their tumours are quite much more left-sided, and uh, the there's a big growth in early-onset bowel cancer. We've over the last thirty, well, basically so effects, it's a cohort effect since 1960. There's been an increase in in. in um, Bowel cancer in the under six and down fifties, and that cancer effect, tends to affect the left side of the bowel, from the infection mm-hmm. And so, with that, we don't know why that is. So, before you ask, uh, I wish we did, but we've got some ideas which we're following up on. So, the the late onset bowel cancers are so those that are. My age, over fifty, um, that is um, more carries on the normal distribution. What we've also noticed in those over eighty is an increase in right-sided cancer. Now, I think that's a diagnostic issue. If you go back to the nineteen sixties, that anyone who got iron deficiency anaemia or got symptoms with eighty, they would have just been they wouldn't have been thoroughly investigated because uh, that was considered quite old. These days, 80 is not considered that old, and we would definitely do tests for most people at age and diagnose the right side of cancers, um, and they're often very silent. They present either with anemia or very very minor symptoms, often until they get quite advanced. So that, that increase in over-80s cancers on the right side, I think, is a reflection of the diagnostic tools that we're using. They're probably always there. We're just... We're more able to get an that now, so we're more able to get that. But the young young people getting it, there's really the interesting thing because we've been investigating the etiology of sporadic bowel cancer. So bowel cancer has sort of three different groups. They have those associated with inherited genetic abnormality. Um, so there might be Lynch syndrome or familial adenomatous polyposis or various other syndromes, and that probably only counts for about 6 or 8% at most. Mm-hmm. Then there's a small number of bowel cancers associated with inflammatory bowel disease and that's probably about 1%, so they have a chronic inflammatory condition. And then there's the vast majority of people with bowel cancer, probably 85-90% if not more, that have what we call sporadic bowel cancer. So that is bowel cancer that just happens um, for some reason that we don't know. Now... There's probably a little, you know, if I think about what we knew in 1993 and what we knew today, there's been a lot of the Lynch syndromes and lots of other bits and pieces about familial syndromes that we didn't know about uh, now apparent 30 years later, and it will be the same with this. So we, we don't, we're we not at the end of our knowledge on this. But the when we talk about bowel cancer, we're talking a bit like a... a um, a mixed pick of lollies, you know, or a box of chocolates, to use a phrase, that's thing. We don't know what we've got. There's probably a whole pile of different types in there. Um, and we, we all recognise it as a chocolate or as a bowel cancer. But in fact, um, using molecular subtyping and various other things, we can now divide them into different categories. And while we look, while we use guidance, such as age of the patient and the type of Histology of the tumour. We're still looking at the. um, It's a pretty coarse assessment of what the actual basis for that cancer is. So if you think about it, it's a bit like getting a Christmas present and saying, "What? This is soft." and, and easily spongy it's a uh, it must be a jersey or a bit of clothing while something that's hard and and, and has a fluid sound and it might be a bottle of wine you know and, and that's kind of where we are with bowel cancer when we when we use the tools we've got them the routine tools now it's pretty coarse mm-hmm. um, the molecular subtyping is a way of looking at the genes uh, genetic leaders for the cancer and if we can see that there's a uh, changes that are associated with uh, say some of the familial syndromes. So a lot of the familial syndromes work on the concept of it like a spell check abnormality. So you know when your computer, when you're writing something and it go, puts an American spelling on a word? Yep, same sort of thing. Okay, <laughs> flipping annoying. Um, the, the same thing happens with cancer cells. that you, You're making abnormal cells all the time and your body has a system going through and taking this correcting the spelling um, but if you have a spell check abnormality then it's just correcting it to the wrong thing or not not seeing what you've written is wrong it's probably a better way of putting it and so that is what how most not all genetic abnormalities develop, but that's the most common thing is a spell check abnormality, and so that it doesn't identify it as, as uh, something that's not quite wrong, and therefore you develop a cancer. So that's, that's the familial inherited genetic sort of things. The other type uh, of familial one is is the one like if you buy one lotto ticket, you have so much of a chance of getting winning a lotto, if you buy a thousand lotto tickets, a thousand times a chance, and that's the ones who grow lots of polyps. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're buying more tickets than the raffle. The and there's also a thing with that that, that tends to happen earlier. So that's part of the drive for mobile polyps. With sporadic, we we don't have a, a reason. And what we have done is a lot of work looking at the luminal content. So we believe that the the, the driver is what's inside your bowel. Um, and the fecal matter uh, and what goes with it, the microbiome and the bacteria. Now your bowel has a lining in it called mucus which is thickest in the cecum and thins down uh, further down the bowel. And what we think happens is that the, uh, the, the interaction the mucus protects you. if for some reason it doesn't, um, then the toxins made by the bowel by the bacteria in the bowel, can cause a uh, set you up to develop precancerous lesions. Now we've shown this. We followed a whole pile of people for twenty years. We took biopsies and stored them, and then see, saw who developed polyps and cancer. We went back and looked at their bacteria, at their bacteria from the bowel. Now, um, there's a type of bacteria called and which, which is, causes gastric cancer and peptic ulcer disease. It has a first cousin. Uh, looks very similar, called ETBF, uh, and that makes a toxin that has the same sort of effect. It works on ecoherin and so it has a particular type of pattern of, of genetic um, abnormality that it creates, uh, the way the cells hold together, and then lets things... Up. So... The, We've identified this bacteria, we can show that it causes this abnormality in the lab and we've found over 20 years that people who had the bacteria have this, you know, till to, to about five zeros chance of developing bowel cancers. You know, about precancerous lesions compared to people who haven't. Um, so it looks like it's one of the drivers. It's probably not the only driver. We've looked at, um, we've looked at uh, some types of E. coli, uh, and some other bacteria. So what we suspect is happening is that there's a variety of bacteria that make toxins that are setting things up. If you have a PAS-type um, E. coli and you have ETBF, then they ha- they are synergistic, which means that they probably work sequentially mm-hmm. um, as opposed to on the same target. Um, and so that is... And we can... Con- Confirm this on the lab, and we confirm things we kind of know from epidemiology studies. So we know that if you eat a lot of red meat, you increase your chance of bowel cancer. Okay, that's a nice simple thing. So we also know that ETBF loves the heme in red meat and becomes more toxin producing. Oh, so it fits with the what we're seeing in, in the what we know epidemiologically, what we're seeing in the lab, and what we're seeing in the in the long term studies are all all match. We also know that if you have a lot of fiber, um, it turns off the toxin production in ETBF, which fits with what we know uh, epidemiology, high fiber diet, reduces your chance of getting bowel cancer. Um, so so what we're getting together is a, is a group of things that come together. So the early onset bowel cancer is, is really interesting for us. Uh, as researchers, because we are, uh, there's something else that, that's changed, and it will give us an insight into the process. And given that the cancers are, are drifted to the tail of your bowel, your rectum, and your sigmoid, then there's something that's going on there. And this is where we think the mucus layer is actually critical. There's probably the toxins being produced, despite what. A, lot, a number of people say, young people these days tend to be much more health conscious. They tend to, if you look at the total consumption of red meat, it's actually gone down. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, people won't blame alcohol. Well, actually alcohol consumption has actually gone, is no higher than it's ever been. What what What's changed is the type of alcohol. So alcohol is an agent itself. Smoking um, smoking's become less common. Um, it's it's uh, compared to what it was in the sixties. If we have a look at almost everything is fat fat free these days. You know, like you go to the supermarket, there's nothing which doesn't which seems to contain fat. You know, it's just literally everywhere. It's become this. So, but what those all been replaced with is carbohydrates, um, because you know people are getting fatter, and I suspect that's a carbohydrate thing as much as anything. So it's a um, so. It's hard to find a link with the carbohydrates to what is driving this. Uh, We do think that there's probably stuff in the diet that's working on the bacteria that is mucolytic, which is dissolving, putting holes in your protective layer, and that's probably part of the driver. There's other things in the environment that are going on uh, outside of what we eat that may also have a role. It's possible that microplastics might be playing a, a role in bridges. Uh, because the, that follows about 20 years behind the increased microplastics as we're seeing and that would fit, particularly when we see, but we're, we haven't got proof of that. We're still working on this, so, but it will give us an insight into the process for people that are that, that have bowel cancer, whatever age range they are, but I suspect there's some environmental influence that's altered that gives us a chance to see into, some, into this uh, area at the present time. And that's what we're spending a lot of our time looking at and trying to sort out at the moment. It's a fascinating area. Sorry, I could talk for days on it.
0: No, it's <laughs> so interesting, Frank, and I feel like I have so many questions now to ask you about <laughs> all of that. Um, with, the, so it, with how rapidly this increase, in particularly the under-50s, has occurred, it's obviously a lot more than just genetics. It has to be something environmental. Is there differences in, say the urban versus rural in this under-50s group? Like, is it predominantly in the urban, or...?
1: So, I can give you an answer to that in about a month's time. Um, <laughs> but but the um, at the moment, uh, no, it, it doesn't seem to be... So what's happened in the past? Rural people have high, had higher rates of bowel cancer. But if you can control that for meat consumption, it more or less cancelled out rural people tend to eat, be, be, uh, eat more meat, um, and they have it more often and a larger volume. So that more or less weighs the whole thing. Um, and so th- I think that's been part of the rural, living in the, in the rural community. Also they tend to present with more advanced disease because they don't tend to go to, be, uh, to access medical care quite so easily. And that's partly the personality and partly the logistics of living in the rural community. Uh, so the, there is this sort of issue with, with with rural communities. Also, there's parts of the country, as you asked before, which have higher rates of bowel cancer. In South Canterbury, it would be one. In Southland, another, have quite high rates. Part of that will be the... Um, genetic predisposition of that general population, it tends to, both those areas tend to be quite white. Um, while if you say South Auckland have a lower rate per capita of bowel cancer, and part of that's the youth of that group, but also the the more Pacifica, um, Maori mix, which tend to have a lower rates of bowel cancer overall.
0: Mmm, so interesting. Um with the red meat, now I'm really keen to get a bit more into this, <laughs> being a dietitian. Um, a lot of some of the big trials that have been done over the years, the thing that frustrates me is when they collect the dietary data, they often lump processed meats like your bacon and salami and things with red meat. So and the research you've done and what you know can we be sure that you know that there, there's definitely a separation there and if it is just red meat alone what other factors besides heme iron which you've already mentioned could be driving like is it the way we cook red meat being you know kiwis love their barbecues
1: okay so i'll answer that in two parts um one is about processed meat they are higher without doubt okay so you know just and in fact um If you take three countries that are not this similar—New Zealand, Sweden, and Scotland—okay, as a group, we all have three different rates of bowel cancer as a country. We've got a decreasing rate of bowel cancer overall, Hmm. okay, and that's that's great. And though, and that was decreasing before screening came in, okay. So, the Scotland's got a very stable rate of bowel cancer. Sweden's got an increasing rate of bowel cancer. And you would wonder why in a community that has got no access to health care, which is generally quite affluent and everything else, it appears that it's likely to tie in with the increased consumption of processed meats. Mm. And they have this idea of returning to their, um, the, the, the type of diet people had in the past, like not unlike New Zealand and many other countries which try to, to pull th- things from the past and, and reconnect them to the present. Um, and that has been partly one of the issues about their diet. They are trying to reinv- reinvigorate their historic diets, and that's a lot of processed meat. in that. so I think that you'll find that processed meat, without doubt, stands out. WHO has put a, um, as you're probably aware from the on the from the website, has put a has listed red meat as a carcinogen. Um, up there with smoking and everything else, alcohol uh, and viruses, certain viruses. So. It seems to be the heme that that's the driver, nothing else. So the the issue about um, this artificial meat that they're talking about, where they create a heme, will be interesting. Because mm. you probably realise some of the uh, the plant based the, the plant based um, meat that they uh, have created, they're putting artificial heme in it, and I'm not sure whether that will actually reduce your bowel cancer rate because we haven't really had a chance to look at what that artificial looks like and whether that also increases toxin production. So it's an interesting space there, too, but it hasn't been a priority for us. at amongst everything else. Uh, but that's an area to look at in the future. But it'll be interesting to see what, what, um, what, what that shows.
0: Is it how we consume a meal too? Like if you've, say, got a, a steak, but you're consuming it along all those really positive dietary factors like fibre and green leafy veggies, does that then cancel out the risk?
1: it will reduce it, but the biggest thing is the, is the amount of how often you have red meat that that's shown so three or four times a week. Mm. It's probably okay. Um, the size of the piece you have, something the palm of your hand, size the palm of your hand sort of thing. Mm. Um, so small hands, um, small amount of meat um, the um, that, that sort of sort of guidance um, yeah mm.
0: And with the whole gut microbiome, What do we know about antibiotic use and how this can potentially impact us long-term?
1: Okay. It's a good question. um, We've been looking at, okay. So you've got to remember there's various competing places. And one of the issues is that when you go and buy antibiotics antibiotics from your chemist, they'll try and sell you some probiotics. Okay. And they'll make way more out of the probiotics than they do out of the antibiotics. Um. With most probiotics, it's a bit like peeing in the sea and expecting it to go yellow. It won't happen. The dilutional effect uh, is such that you just don't see the change and you have to have a sustained effect. And when you stop the probiotics, it'll tend to drift back to whatever your natural state is because you you have a homeostatic state, so you can adjust it slightly, but what happens it drifts back to whatever that state is. Mm. So um, the, the way that... People have managed to alter the microbiome Is when you've got something bad in there, such as a clostridium difficile, and you can't tear it. Then people have looked at, at um, undertaking microbiome transplants, fecal transplants, where you put a colonoscope in and spray all the... Somebody else's shit around, and you repopulate it <laughs> with stuff that works, okay? And, and that, that kind of works, that you can get rid of stuff like that, usually. Um, the, the issue about whether you can... Whether uh, how much probiotics actually alters things is really hard to say, because most probiotics are—you got to go through the acid bath of the stomach, you've got to get to the cecum, and then you then they're in a competition. So a hundred thousand bacteria, probiotics, the hypozype agents, and what is trillions, you know, like this is not billions, but trillions of bacteria. It's a bit hard, and that's why I say it's a bit like peeing in the sea and expecting the sea to go yellow. It won't happen. Mm-hmm. You'll see a little bit of a change about where you are, and a generally dilutional delusional effect. You may notice a little bit of change if you're consistent with it for a while, and the place where probiotics have had some impact are People who have, say, lost their colon um, and then got an ideal, small bowel joint to the anus, um, and you can get a thing called pouchitis in that situation, and there they seem to have a role uh, in some studies. Most of the studies were probiotic intervention that when you get someone, when you look at the outcome and really look at the study, it's questionable. When someone's repeated it, they haven't. We've looked at uh, the microbiome in regard to different diseases, say the microbiome and whether it has a role in appendicitis, whether it has a role in diverticulitis, and the changes we're seeing in, in those sort of studies are quite consistent with what the changes you see with inflammation. So when you have inflammation, you get an alteration because you've changed the environment, and so therefore, you tend to promote certain bacteria, and you tend to, because uh, you change the environment, you also create an environment with other bacteria. don't. So the result is that one may become dominant in that environment, and then people think that it might cause the, the, the problem. Often what you're seeing is not the cause of it, but the consequences. Mm-hmm. So the issue between cause and effect in this is, is actually very challenging and um when you have a serious look at the effect of this, it's very hard to shake out where the truth lies. Mm -hmm. Um, And the interesting thing to me is that we're seeing the same changes with appendicitis as diverticulitis um, with the the way the microbiome changes. So that, and they're at different age ranges. So I suspect that what we're we're seeing as a signal and change in the microbiome relates purely to the fact that that's what inflammation does to your bowel so that is still those thoughts are still on evolution um yeah just so that the people listening can understand you get your microbiome largely from your mother and by the age three that you pretty much what it is it will continue to change a little bit as you as you grow to your 20s and then as you get into your 70s tend to alter if you move substantially Uh, So if you move from Africa to America, uh, your microbiome will alter as you adapt the diet of the country that you move to. Um, And if you don't adapt the diet to the country you move to, your microbiome will change slightly but not as much. Most people don't have little choice but to adapt the diet of the country they uh, move to. And it's quite interesting in regard to bowel cancer because we know from migrant studies, uh, with bowel cancer. The Japanese moving to America, Japan has a low rate of bowel cancer, America has a high rate of bowel cancer. If you... and, and other studies, uh, Polish moving to Australia, etc., the, the, if you move before the age of 30, you adapt the rate of bowel cancer of the country you move to. If you move after the age of 30, you bring the rate of bowel cancer of the country you came from. Mm, that's so, so interesting. Very, yeah, yeah, and it's... You know, I think that reflects the impact of diet, because mm. um, young people tend to be more adaptive, and, you know, 30 is just sort of the, the middle, the mid-spot, so if you're 17 and, and move to America, you're probably going to get into hamburgers and milkshakes and whatever other rubbish they eat. If, if if you're 40 and move to America, you're probably going to have a taste for what, you, what you've eaten for the last 40 years, mm. and so you're less adaptable to dietary change, so...
0: Yeah. hmm so fascinating. With the different countries and things, um, overall New Zealand's rate of bowel cancer is coming down, which is wonderful. but in this under 50s group it's really increasing a lot. How does that under 50s data compare to other countries? Is New Zealand yeah. really standing out?
1: It's it's interesting, I thought it might, but it doesn't. We compared it with, uh, with the three, three countries I mean before, it's Scotland and Sweden, and all three countries have the same pattern, about the same degree, so despite the overall pattern for the country changing, the, the increase in the under 50s is much the same. It is different in different countries, clearly there are some countries which are adapting faster that are making this change, yeah. the, the change is more obvious. It is difficult because many countries don't collect national data and uh, then it's not possible. So we're we're kind of limited to largely westernised countries because they have the best data Um, uh, but most of there's been studies looking at European countries and they show the same sort of thing uh, the major European, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, um, the UK. There's some data that's come out of Australia looks very similar and some data from America but it's the, the difficulty is that a lot of other countries, where you'd really like to see this is happening in China, say. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not sure. Mm-hmm. It, it would be if it stood up in China, then that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. But we just and is it places like India? You know, these populous like countries. It's it's hard to know whether the old data is any good. Whether and you need longitudinal data to make it. So it's all. Very good if you've got great data now, but I need the data you know, we need the data from the late sixties and seventies to be able to see the pattern. And whether it was under diagnosis or uh, or data just wasn't collected, it's very long longitudinal data is what giving us the insight
0: into this. A lot of challenges with that.
1: Mm. Yeah, there is
0: in New Zealand, uh, has the have you also seen an increase in the rate of other bowel diseases similar to that in the under fifties group, say of things like Crohn's and colitis?
1: Yeah, so there there is an increase in inflammatory bowel disease, particularly Crohn's disease, um, in the in the young in young people. It's again, we we're left with the idea is that we're now able to diagnose this. People might have thought they had irritable bowel and just had um, you know, chronic abdominal variation symptoms, now they're more likely to be investigated and diagnosed. So the part of it will be that. But there also is a belief that there's an increase in inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. Um, So that is a component to what's going on.
0: Mm. And just out of interest, um, because you probably see quite a bit of it as well, irritable bowel syndrome, has there been changes in that since um, the Christchurch earthquakes, just with the immense stress everyone's gone through?
1: Yeah, so there is a lot of irritable bowel. Um, it's always been relatively common. One in five, one in four people will have irritable bowel, as you'll be aware. And um, the, the ability to diagnose, to separate that out, to what's the driver. So, irritable bowel has become a collect hold of symptoms, and people get in that. But when you often dissect it out, it can be fructose intolerance. It can be a variety of stuff or lactose intolerance that comes in once you sort that out. So uh, because you're dealing with symptoms um, and putting a label on it, it sometimes doesn't go past that. Mm. Uh, but it's it's uh, definitely a, a lot of it around. Anxiety tends to promote it. Anxiety, as you'll be well aware, has increased a lot in young people these days, and um, particularly health anxiety uh, is very, very common. Um, and it's very difficult to, to separate that out with, you know, you know it, it, I think the driving influence of things like social media, increasing connectedness between people, something happens somewhere and everyone knows about it. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah all that sort of stuff.
0: <clears throat> and just to come back to the younger people again, because it's very, very interesting. Um, New Zealand has the bowel cancer screening kits for the 60 to 74-year age group. Having yep. just discussed all of what we have, what age do you think would be the ideal for that screening to start?
1: Yeah, look, I think it needs to drop to 45. Mm. Uh, probably need to drop below that, but uh, 45 would be a reasonable age. There's been a large amount of uh, research looking at where the, where the spot is. Um, part of it's economic driven and resource resource driven, um, but forty five Australia is pushing for forty. Um, is going for forty five. I think probably somewhere in that gap would be a, would be the space to go. Um, the just so that your listeners understand that part of this is that the what happens is that you pick a little thing into a poo sample that you do, and then you send that off, and if that shows signs of blood. Then you get a colonoscopy, which might find something. Um, we know that in the sixty to seventy-four age group, that, that if you have a positive, about seven or eight percent of people will have a positive test, and they'll get a colonoscopy. And there's quite a high rate of finding things—polyps, precancerous lesions, or cancers—before patients become symptomatic. That will obviously, as you go to younger people, that there are because of the lower rate of bowel cancer, there'll be more people that have. Uh, other causes for their blood and their bowel motions um, but just the same it's a it's a it'd be a lot of people would be a higher rate of people with normal tests and that's fine because that's what you want mm. uh, you only want to pick up people who, who have got something there so um, yeah so we're, we're trying to get people also you got to you know it was 1996-97 that I started pushing for bowel cancer screening only finally got there you know in the last two years Mm. Um, it's taken 25 years to get it Mm. um, rolled out nationally so the fact that I'm very aware of the immense inertia dealing with things like the Ministry of Health, uh, no amount of trying to get things done um, makes things happen in a hurry so it's very important that, that uh, there's more, more momentum, there's a faster ability to get the ministry to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, sitting back and saying, "Have n't we done well?" I think it's a bit pitiful. We've we've done atrociously badly um, in rolling this out, and we should have done it much quicker. Mm-hmm. We would have saved a lot of people, and we could have got a much better result. Instead of that, we have um, meandered very slowly.
0: And bowel cancer is a cancer that if caught early it's often very curable isn't it so
1: it is and it's often very avoidable too mm. because if you take off a, a polyp then you don't get cancer mm. so it's um and polyps will give you a positive fecal cold blood mm. so you can actually drive down the rate of bowel cancer by the removing precancerous lesions. lesions mm.
0: so interesting and colonoscopy is gold standard for finding polyps and bowel cancers, but a lot of people when they hear about a colonoscopy or know what it entails are very put off or quite afraid of getting one done. But you do many of these. Um, So do you want to shed some light on that they're really okay?
1: (laughs) They are. Look, the colonoscopy, the concept of someone sticking up something uh, with a little camera up your back, passage and around the bowel is pretty gross. Okay, I accept that. And before that, you've got to have something to get all the poo out of the way so you can actually see what's going on. So we have that combination of having to have something. Often the hardest part as a patient is actually the clean out, it's sort of unpleasant, Mm. um, having the shits for uh, evening. um, uh, but it it is the, the colonoscopy procedure itself uh, is it's usually done under sedation. It can be done under general anaesthetic, and a few people uh, prefer to be wide awake, and that's fine. It can be it can it can be moulded to what your uh, concerns are. Um, but it, though it is a, a little uncomfortable, it, it is not the, it's not that um, that unpleasant, and it will give you a lot of reassurance about whether there's something there or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: so people should just get it done. Yeah. Um, is there anything in your own diet and lifestyle that you'd say you're very conscious of? Knowing all that you do know, with you know, red meat or alcohol, exercise.
1: Yeah. Um. So the stuff that you're you aware of is you know basically not trying to be too overweight, trying to keep your alcohol consumption down, don't smoke, um, keep your red meat consumption, eat your vegetables. So yes, to all those things, I try and watch. Try to exercise regularly. I don't drink alcohol. I uh, I don't smoke, and I uh, try to keep my red meat consumption under control. Um, it's not yeah. You know, I've I've not come from the background where you would um, where that would be normal. I would be definitely have grown up with eating meat most days. Mm. Uh, so now. It's about trying to adjust your the things that you've lived with based upon the knowledge you have, and we all do the things that you grew up with as part of the routine that is no longer fits, and that can be in many aspects of your life.
0: Interesting to hear. Um, with the exercise now, I have heard that you were quite the athlete back in your day.
1: <laughs> uh, um <laughs> I used to do the coast to coast and the Ironman, um, the Wanaka Ironman thing. Uh, i would moved from coast to coast after dozen times to moving to do the Wanaka Ironman. I've done the CrossFit marathon. I don't know how many times. That would be probably twenty times. Oh more. wow! Yeah. And I've done the half uh, half um, uh, marathon as I got old in, in my fifties a few times. But uh, yeah, I used to do quite a lot of those sort of events uh, and. Of course, you don't just uh, front up to do the coast to coast, you put a lot of, you know, you put many months of training into that too. Um, yes, I enjoyed them. They were, they were a good, a good, um, they, were, they were good for me to have that uh, outlet and to, um, to have the exercise. But I did enjoy it, but um, like, Like everything, the the accumulated damage (laughs) over many years means that now I go cycling and I go walking on the hills and I've I've, um, wound back a little bit from being quite so crazy.
0: Did you do Coast to Coast as an individual or as a team?
1: I did it as a team, I did it with different people and um, I enjoyed it, it was good, it allowed us to, different years you do different parts of it, that's when there was a two person team and I did it with a variety of people and um, it was good, sometimes you do the hill run other times the kayak or other things like that and it's, uh, no it was a great, I really enjoyed it. It's a great event, did you, what was your favourite part of The hill run. Yeah.
0: It's quite special.
1: Actually, probably probably the favourite was the ride in the Christchurch, yeah. actually, think about it at the end. That ride in the Christchurch can be fantastic, um, and particularly when you get into a bunch, um, it can be really good, and particularly, the, we used to finish at Sumner before they moved to Brighton, and it was, um, yeah, no, it was kind of quite spectacular.
0: Only if you're in a bunch though, because that northeasterly is never fun. <laughs>
1: No, no, But once you got onto the Brum Street um, ring, usually you'd break up by then, and uh, definitely the the competition of these people never went away. You know, even at the end, the people would still be trying to sprint ahead to get one or two more places up the, the ladder. But mm. so, no, it was good. It was uh, it appealed to me.
0: Mm.
1: My perverse behaviour.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and did you any do any ultra runs or anything like that, or was it just the Ironman and Coast to Coast?
1: Yeah, I've done some double marathons, uh, the Molesworth double marathon and some other bits like that, but that requires a high degree of madness to do that stuff, Um, and uh, it was done at, uh, and then the coast to coast was, was great, but it's sort of... It wasn't that family friendly because where it was and the time you spent most of your You had to you had to do a lot of training because of the multiple different things. Mm. So moving to something like the the Ironman was a bit easier. Um, I know it's swimming, but it's not quite so bad, and um, and the the run was fine and the cycle was good and I enjoyed that and I did that both as a team and individual. It was good. Mm. It was um, it was definitely I've done the. Um, some of those other runs down south, uh, the ones, what's it called, uh, the one around Tianao. around Kepler.
0: Kepler. Kepler, Oh, yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, that as well. So yeah, that was, and a variety of other bits and pieces over the years, um, but it was sort of mainly running base for quite a long time there, mm. and then i took up cycling and whatever it tells to talk to do these these events.
0: Mm. Oh, cool. Great to hear about that. It's really neat. Alright, well, it's been so wonderful hearing all your insights today, Frank, and sharing your knowledge. Uh, I generally like to finish now with fast five to finish, so that a bit of a surprise, a bit random. Um, so, firstly, what is your favourite meal? Uh,
1: favourite meal is probably what I had last uh, uh, last night, which, uh, which was uh, salmon. I quite like salmon.
0: Yum. Yep. Great. Favourite book you have read recently?
1: Um, now I was just um, announced this I had got interviewed by Jesse Mullen recently and they asked me the same question. and <laughs> it's, it. it's called the Pale Rider and it's partly because of its contemporaries. It was issued. It was published in 2019 just before COVID, and it was about the Spanish flu. And it covered more than just saying what happened. It covered all the economic things and the impact on the economy in the next twenty or thirty years, and how that altered things. The and how it altered people's attitude. It's probably what caused the boom uh, in the nineteen six in the in the twenties, and all those sort of things that you sort of hear about the early twenties and the dance crazes. And that it was part of that. People had seen a lot of people die, and they were in for a good time. And as a result, because Death, both from the First World War and from watching people die afterwards, mm. it altered people's mindset about what was important to them. Mm. Be interesting to see where we go on some of the some of the some of the themes in that book. Mm.
0: Mm. I, yeah, I actually did listen to that interview with Jesse and I didn't mean to ask oh, the same question. No. <laughs> I should have amended that. Um, but it was a great interview. Very good. Yep. Oh, thank you. Um, what is your favourite surgical procedure?
1: Um. Well. Two answers to this, if I could. <laughs> One is the thing I do the most, and that's colonoscopy. I quite enjoy colonoscopy. It's a sort of, uh, yeah, it's it's a good, nice, pleasant procedure. It's nice. But I also enjoy uh, some of the complicated uh, pelvic stuff it gives me. It, it pushes you and challenges you. So it's nice to have a bit of routine day stuff, and it's nice to have the push. Yeah,
0: good mixture. Mm-hmm. What's been the proudest moment in your medical career so far?
1: In the medical career... Um, I'll be graduating. <laughs> yeah, what <always laughs>
0: really. a good
1: day! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm also pr- proud of my my kids and all the rest of it. But that's my medical career was the question. So yes, I think that um, without doubt, it's uh, probably just graduating from medical school. My daughter I, I recently um, uh, was um, given the the Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit, and that was. Quite nice. My mother came along to that in her wheelchair, mm-hmm. and my sisters, and it was it was a very uh, a very nice event. And that, I was very I was proud my mother could could get there.
0: Yeah, that's lovely, and congratulations on that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and lastly, what is a simple piece of advice you would tell your ten year old self?
1: Oh, just enjoy. Don't worry about things. Just that. that Whatever you plan to do, it'll seldom work out. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Sometimes what you don't get is, is actually what you get instead of what you want is, is often better. Mm-hmm. So just just adapt and and go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Um, have goals without doubt, um, but don't don't worry if it doesn't work out. Often the the, the most important things about most goals is the pathway. Mm-hmm. You, is, is what you do to get there not necessarily getting there
0: not the distance.
1: and if I think of many things in life where I haven't, you know I didn't become a neurosurgeon, become a bum surgeon it's been great <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but there's lots of other examples of that, sometimes you, you, you have things that you think you want and you end up somewhere else and it's often way better for you, mm, really way better for, for everyone, so just don't, don't worry if you don't get what you want you'll get what you need
0: Great advice. Cool. Oh, well, thank you so much, Frank. It's been a real honour to have you on the podcast, actually. So um, I'll let you get back to what's probably a very busy Monday for you.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks very much for asking me. Okay. Bye.